You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 29. Halloween. Part 1. Well, hello. Welcome to Denver Orbit. Notice I didn't say the Denver Orbit, just Denver Orbit. I couldn't fit the into a logo and have it look as good, so here we are. Oh, uh, Denver Orbit is also an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison. Well, it's the spookiest time of the year, and we've got things. Halloween-ish. Halloween-y? Halloween... You know what? We've got spooky things for you, all for your ears and your brain. But first, Denver Orbit needs you. We are running frightfully low on music, especially, but we need a little bit of everything. Stories, fiction or non, poems, grocery lists, comedy sets. You want to drop by the studio and read some Ikea instructions? Let's do it. Oh, and did I mention music? So drop us a line at denverorbit at gmail.com. Let's make some art, people. All right, on with today's show. We've got only two things, but they are fantastic things. First up is an exploration of just why in the world we find dolls so creepy. And then we have a one-woman show about Lizzie Borden. Not the Lizzie Borden from Accounts Receivable, who always wears those sweaters. No, no, no. The one with the axe. And I actually don't think there's much more you need from me here, so let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Oh, yes. My name is Michelle Fraser. I work at the Denver Museum of Miniatures, Dolls, and Toys as their director of education. We have a lot of people that come into the museum that are afraid of dolls. They're actually too afraid of dolls to go through the museum. They kind of hang out with us in the lobby. So I just kind of wanted to find out what might be happening there. And I came upon this theory of the uncanny valley. This concept of uncanny valley is popularly used to explain why humanoid figures can make us feel uncomfortable sometimes. So the concept was first identified by a robotics professor in Japan named Masahiro Mori in 1970. So he was really thinking about how to facilitate human-robot interactions and how design could help. He realized that when observers see something that looks kind of human, they have more of a positive reaction to it. And that positive reaction increases more and more the more human something looks. But just as you get to just about human, it goes way down. So if you can imagine a graph where one axis is how human something looks, and the other axis is how comfortable you are with it, just as you get to human, you get this big dip in the line. And that's where the term uncanny valley comes from, that dip. So thinking about robots and design, if you look at an auto manufacturing robot, that's not very creepy at all. 
but you don't really like it that much either because it doesn't look at all human. But if you look at R2-D2 and C-3PO, they're both pretty likable. But because C-3PO is humanoid, you probably expect a little bit more from him. R2-D2 actually surpasses your expectations because he doesn't look human at all, but he has a personality and sentience. If this was reversed, if C-3PO couldn't talk or move, and if R2-D2 could speak, that might be a little creepier. Once robots have too many human features, we begin to expect more of them. And they can't really deliver, because they're not human. Their skin doesn't look like skin, and their expressions are odd, and that's when we start to feel revulsion. As humans, we like to be able to easily categorize what we see. When we receive conflicting cues, something that looks human, but not exactly, or looks human, or doesn't act human, we get uncomfortable. So I began to think about some of the other reasons why we might feel this discomfort. One is what I kind of call the reptile brain reaction. We have an instinctual aversion to corpses. So when we look at a doll or a clown, they kind of have corpse-like features. They have that vacant expression. They don't blink, unnaturally pale skin tone. Their body is very stiff. And when we see that in a human shape, we begin to think, they look sick, and that maybe they could make us sick. When it comes to clowns especially, they're acting really strangely, and maybe because they're acting strangely, they could hurt me. And the distorted facial features are the blank expression of a doll. I can't really tell what this person is thinking or feeling. I don't know if they feel friendly towards me, or if they feel hateful towards me. It makes me uncomfortable. So as kids, we tend to be socialized to get over this feeling. We might be afraid of something and we just want to scream and run away, but we're told to be polite and to stay. Um, but actually, there's no risk in running away. There's always risk in staying. But as a society, we kind of have to overcome that. Unfortunately, there are dangerous people that know to take advantage of this quirk in our development. Like Ted Bundy. Another reason dolls can be so creepy is that they kind of make us aware of our own mortality, especially dolls that are broken or that are fragile. It makes us think about our own bodies and how they could very easily break. They begin to make us think, not only will I die someday, it will be completely out of my control and it could happen at pretty much any moment. When we look at a broken doll, we also think, this could be me, I could become ill, I could lose control of my body. Some disability studies activists call, call this the illusion of bodily wholeness. And it's called an illusion because none of us really have a whole body. None of us have a perfect, healthy body that's like a machine. This is part of the horror that gives us body horror, like The Fly and Hellraiser. Another thing that's creepy about dolls is the idea of the double or the doppelganger. This is something that exists in our collective consciousness, it seems like. We see it in Scandinavia. We see it in Ireland and Northern England, this idea of the bilocation of saints, that if you can be in two places at one time, that you, there's something holy about you. But usually when you have a double, it's a bad thing. It means that you're going to die or that something bad is going to happen to you. This goes against the laws of nature that something cannot exist in two places at the same time. If you have a double, only one of you is going to be able to live. So if we look at dolls, it gives us this uncomfortable feeling that Something 
might be able to replace us or take over for us by looking like us. You see this a lot in the works of David Lynch, such as Twin Peaks or Lost Highway. Another thing that we get into with the Uncanny Valley is this idea that humanity is special in some way and that you shouldn't replicate it. We see this in ancient times in the reluctance in showing animal and human figures in Islamic art and the prescription against graven images in the Bible. And of course, there's Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein expresses feelings of the uncanny towards his creation and he rejects it. But the creature learns humanity despite violating the laws of nature. We see this in more recent pop culture in Blade Runner where we have sympathetic androids. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot one? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30 cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions and consequently we can control them better. But this idea of humanity being special to us and other things that are inhuman being less than special can also result in paranoia. If we look at John Carpenter's The Thing, there's a lot of discussion about who has been infected by this alien creature and replaced it with an identical doppelganger. Who is human? Who can we trust? One other thing, I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody... Nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. We see this also in They Live, that people that look like us may not have our best interests at heart. You can see this sometimes in the political landscape today in which you can dehumanize your opponent. Someone who is working against you is not just working against you, they may not even be human. What does all this have to do with dolls? So a lot of times when children play with dolls, they assign human feelings to that doll. There was a doll called Chatty Cathy, which was a talking doll manufactured by Mattel. But even before that, and beyond that, many children form relationships with, it, with their toys. They talk with them. They give them feelings and personalities. Sometimes parents find this a little creepy. Why are children so interested in these inanimate objects? Why are they imbuing them with so much life? Do they like their toys more than their parents? Do they tell them things that they're not telling their parents? You can see this in an episode of The Twilight Zone that had Talkie Tina, who was a Chatty Cathy ripoff. She was actually voiced by the same woman who voiced Chatty Cathy. 
She's alive, Daddy, and her name is Taki Tina. My name is Taki Tina, and I love you very much. Will you shut that thing off? My name is Taki Tina, and I think I could even hate you. My name is Eric Strader, and I'm going to get rid of you. Hello? My name is Taki Tina, and I'm going to kill you. And there was also an X-Files episode, which did exactly the same thing. We shouldn't really always just accept the Uncanny Valley at face value. Situations can affect what we perceive as uncanny. Studies have shown that lonely, isolated people like uncanny faces. And there's a variety of human experience. We are finding now that some people prefer relationships with inanimate objects. They prefer to live with their real dolls, and they're interested in getting a robot companion. Humans can adapt to situations if there's a payoff, or they've become accustomed to them. So if children are raised around creepy robots, they might not find them as creepy. As society changes, we're going to be faced with more options when it comes to relationships. As the drive to connect is extremely strong, it will likely override any uncanny feelings. You can see this in the latest Blade Runner movie, in which an android has a relationship with a hologram. I would say that I think we should question why we get the creeps around the uncanny. Having an inversion to the uncanny can mean having an inversion to actual human beings who are disabled or transgender, aged, or just cosmetically atypical. We don't seem to like these hybrid entities that gives us an aversion to even genetically modified food. Having a fear of sickness and a fear of our own mortality is something we have to get used to because we're not going to live forever. Misha Fraser is the Director of Education at the Denver Museum of Miniatures, Dolls, and Toys. She strives to keep things weird and inclusive. To learn more about the museum, check out dmmdt.org. Hey there. Do you like the internet? No, no, no. Not the awful one. The one where the good things are. Like the Denver Orbit Facebook page. That's where you can catch up on new episodes as they come out, as well as other random announcements from folks in the creative community. Also, we've got an Instagram page. Now, it's important you understand that not a lot of podcast stuff goes on there, but there are other things happening on that page. Things that are meant to delight and astound you. So go like us or follow us or whatever. You won't be disappointed. And that brings us to the final piece of our little program. Already, you say? Yes, but there just may be more Halloween stuff coming your way very shortly. Before we start this last story, it's worth mentioning that there's murder ahead, and we're not shying away from the gory details. Enjoy! Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Yes, I'm sure you've heard that old schoolyard rhyme. 
could hardly escape it while I was alive. But that dreadful rhyme was a lie through and through, and is not to be trusted. It wasn't 40 or 41 wax, nothing anywhere near that. My father was killed by 11 blows from a hatchet, not an axe. And Mrs. Borden was not my mother, she was my stepmother. She was killed by 19 blows from the hatchet. Well, supposedly. They never did determine what the murder weapon was, exactly. I think maybe the killer took it with him when he fled. I have no idea who it was, but my father had many enemies. He was a very wealthy man, a ruthless businessman. In the days before his murder, I was certain that our home was being stalked. I lived in fear, sleeping with one eye open. On the day of the murders, it is true that I was at home. I'd gone to sit in the barn. I used to keep my pigeons there. Sweet creatures. Very intelligent. A few months before the murders, my father destroyed the roost and murdered my pigeons with a hatchet. I came up to the loft to find them all in a bloody pile of feathers and wood. Father told me they were attracting children in the neighborhood who wanted to hunt them. I suppose he thought it was better to murder them all at once instead of suffering the presence of children on his property, killing them one at a time. But I would still go up there sometimes. To be in the place I had once loved to be. When my father was being hacked to bits, I was in the barn eating pears. When I went back into the house, I found Father on the sofa, his face split apart, blood leaking from his wounds. They said that his eye was split clean in two, as if the first blow had come while he napped, eyes closed. A permanent sleep he would never wake from. I called for Bridget, our maid, as soon as I found Father. I sat with him while I sent her to call the doctor. When the doctor arrived, he inquired as to the whereabouts of my stepmother. I sent Bridget to check on her. She was a nervous girl and refused to search the house on her own with a potential murderer inside. So a neighbor went with her, and it wasn't long before the doctor and I heard the screams of the women. They found Mrs. Borden's body in the guest room. Eventually, the police arrived and began to question me. Later, the police would insist they disliked my attitude. That I was unhelpful and unfazed by the murder. As if there's a proper way to act when one's father has been murdered. A few days later, the police returned to inform me that I was to be arrested as the prime suspect in the murder of Andrew and Abby Borden. Obviously, this sent me into a state of extreme agitation. I was given morphine before the court questioned me to calm my nerves. I requested my lawyer's presence at the inquest, but this request was denied. In a morphine-doused stupor, I gave a damning testimony. Have you ever had morphine? It can be lovely in the correct dose, but to recount the activities of a particularly traumatic date upon the substance... Well. The inquest was deemed inadmissible in court, fortunately. 
They should have allowed my lawyer to be present. In the end, the jury took 90 minutes to deliberate the flimsy case against me. Not guilty. Of course, the verdict never mattered to anyone else. Because of my status, I was vilified by the papers. It was scandalous, even the mere idea of a woman like me committing such a dreadful crime. The public found me fascinating, and a guilty murderess sells far more papers than an innocent girl on trial for death she hadn't even been given a moment to digest. I loved my father. The newspapers reported that I swooned at the sight of my father and Mrs. Borden's skulls when they were brought into the courtroom as evidence. Of course I swooned. How would you respond to the sight of your murdered and now decapitated parents' skulls? But this was twisted into a guilty reaction to my handiwork. I could not yawn in the courtroom without the papers calling me heartless and cold, bored by the proceedings of my murder trial. It was all about selling papers. In fact, I believe that vicious poem I quoted earlier was used by newsboys to sell copies of papers containing any story about me. It was a dreadful slandering of my name on a national scale. I was acquitted, and yet the court of public opinion punished me for the remainder of my life for a crime I had nothing to do with. My father was n not a good man. Yes, he had his business enemies, but he had something worse than that. An affair. And a bastard son. A few days before the murder, a man calling himself William Borden appeared at our door asking desperately to speak with my father. I'm ashamed to say I listened at the door and was shocked to hear this man reveal himself as father's illegitimate son. He demanded that my father acknowledge him as his child and help him financially to achieve the prestige that his true-born son was due. Otherwise, he threatened to expose my father. Father, being a stubborn man, refused to entertain William even for a moment. He threw him out of the house unceremoniously. I was never so cold as my father. I went to William and I saw my father's features. His nose, his eyes, his jaw reflected back to me. There was no doubt this man was my brother. William begged me to help father change his mind. I told him that if he wanted anything financially from my father, he would need to convince my stepmother, who had come to hold the purse strings of our household more and more. William and I hatched a plan. I knew that he would never obtain an audience with Mrs. Borden or my father, so a few days after his first visit, William returned. But this time, he snuck into the house through the cellar door, which I had left unlocked for him. 
His plan was to meet with my stepmother privately, reveal my father's indiscretion, and rely on her desire to avoid scandal to achieve William's ultimate financial goals. She must not have been as compliant as I had expected, or perhaps I misjudged William's mental stability, his desperation. As he entered the cellar, he must have grabbed a hatchet to bring with him to his discussion with Mrs. Borden. The discussion ended when he smacked her across the cheek with the blade of his hatchet. I did not know what had transpired before my father returned home. I had planned to allow William the necessary time to achieve his goals. Little did I know that those goals included bashing my father's skull to bloody bits. William left with the true murder weapon. I never saw him again. And I never admitted to my part in allowing that deranged madman the time and opportunity to murder my father and stepmother. It was Emma and my Uncle John who helped me to hatch the scheme. Father was always a frugal man. He rarely spent a nickel he didn't have to. And perhaps that's why he was wealthy. But for us, it was such a miserable existence. Any one of means in Fall River lived on the hill. But my father insisted on maintaining our residence in the city. And it was always maintained, never improved, only maintained. In a world of electricity and indoor plumbing, my father insisted we continue to use gas lamps and take our baths by lugging hot kettles of water to the tub. I had to beg my father for new dresses when my clothing was out of fashion and full of holes, his fists clenched tightly about his purse. But then, suddenly, my father, who could never be described as anything less than miserly, began to give large gifts to my stepmother's family. Not an armoire or sofa, but an entire house. Property to people who had nothing to do with our family. Only Abby's loafing sister. Emma and I confronted our father with our outrage. In the end... He attempted to soothe us by gifting us our childhood home. <laughs> we sold it back to him and collected the money. But it wasn't enough. Emma and I would never survive on that alone. We realized the desperation of our situation. You see, all of my father's money was promised to his wife, Abby. His entire fortune would go to her upon his death, and Emma and I would be left with nothing. Destitute. What would we do without his financial support? Father had never taught us to manage his business affairs, and he never encouraged us to learn any other skill that might allow us to become independent. But then he never let us go out, never let us meet suitors who might take his place. We were banned from becoming anything other than his daughters. Trapped. We wrote to my Uncle John, my mother, my real mother's brother, 
We ask that he might visit to help us sort out the terrible predicament and reason with Father. But Father was under Abby's thumb. I knew what needed to be done. A few days before the murder, I attempted to purchase a vial of poison. I was turned away, unfortunately. It was my uncle who then suggested we hire someone else to do the deed. Emma insisted, however, that it must not look as such. A few weeks earlier, there had been a dreadful axe murder near Fall River. What if the same maniac came for my stepmother and father as well? We do straws to see who would be responsible for remaining with Mrs. Borden and father and ensuring the deed was done properly. Mrs. Borden had to die first. That way her fortune would legally transfer to my father before it was then inherited by Emma and me once he had died. I drew the shortest straw. I could not bear to be in the house. I left the cellar door ajar for our hired hand of death, and I went to the barn, to the site of my pigeon's massacre, to remind myself of the violence my father had performed on them. I imagined all of their tiny souls returning to earth to end his life. It almost began to feel like justice. But then... I saw what happened to Father. His features completely erased by gore, and it felt far less like justice. Of course, I knew I might become a suspect. Emma and Uncle John left me there with airtight alibis for themselves. I might be arrested, I knew, and I was. But they gave me morphine before the inquest, and I was unable to focus on the well-crafted story I had already devised. I couldn't even remember what I said, which led to inconsistencies and further suspicions of my guilt. However, in the end, the drug-induced testimony was dismissed, and I was found not guilty. Emma and I received our full inheritance and promptly purchased a home on the hill, in which we were able to live out our days comfortably, if not peacefully, my notoriety haunting me until the day I died. I never had any suitors. By the time my father and stepmother were killed, I was considered a spinster. I never married, even after they were gone and I was free to do as I pleased. I think Mrs. Borden might have expected that I might find someone eventually. She had married my father when she was older than I, and I expect she thought I would also meet a widower someday who might take me off her hands. <laughs> I don't think she ever expected to find me in bed with the maid. Both of us, naked. <laughs> At first she was shocked, unable to speak. She stood there staring at us, eyes bulging from her head, mouth agape, her jaw working ever so slightly in an effort to expel the torrent of vile that came next. Lizzie! she screamed. You disgusting harlot! What are you doing in here? What are you doing to Bridget? 
You've corrupted her. You've soiled her. You've soiled that bad outhouse. Is this why all the maids have left? Have you been forcing these Christian girls to withstand your hellish, whorish sodomy? You repulsive wretch! It's not enough that you should leech your existence from Andrew, but you disrespect this house with your lascivious acts of unholy copulation! How dare you! How dare you! Your father will hear about this! You will go straight to the sanitarium so that we might be rid of your sinful burdens within this house of God! You nauseating, horrifying, repellent! I ended her tirade with a bash across the mouth with a candlestick from a mantle. The force of the blow caused her to whip around, falling to the floor. In an instant, I was on top of her, and I continued to strike the back of her head. In a blind rage, I attacked the woman, the sluttish whore who had come into our lives and stolen our inheritance, who always treated me as less than, who attempted to stomp out any remaining existence of my mother's memory. This woman who looked at me as if I was a horror for daring to love. I smashed her again and again with a candlestick. Blood spattered across my naked body, the candlestick slick with blood. Finally, exhausted from my vicious hammering, I slumped over and began to weep. Realizing what I had done, I turned to Bridget. My Maggie. My Maggie. Beautiful Maggie. She helped me to my feet. She helped me wash myself. She calmed me. I realized that my father would be home shortly. It would be impossible to clean up the body in time and, and the blood. There was so much blood. When father came home, I greeted him and went with him to the sitting room. I knew what had to be done. Father, I must tell you something. Something... Something dreadful has happened. I... I don't know what came over me. I... I've hurt Mrs. Borden. Lizzie, he said. I know things have not been warm between you, but that is not necessary. I'm very disappointed. How badly is she hurt? Quite badly, I'm afraid. Father, I'm afraid I've killed her. Suddenly, my father grew dark. The stillness between us was palpable. I went on for excruciating minutes. I could bear it no longer. I'm sorry, Father. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. She was threatening me, and I just reacted. How? He asked. How did she threaten you? Abby has never hurt you. She would never hurt you. How? She... She threatened to expose me. To you. To tell you to... Make you hate me. And then he was grabbing me, shaking me, and asking me again and again how I could do this. And then my mouth was running away with me. She, she called me disgusting. 
She called me a repulsive whore because I love Maggie because she found us in love and she wasn't supposed to be home and she was there and she was looking at me with that face, that dreadful, hateful face. And then, and then I realized my father, he was making that same hateful face. He threw me to the floor. He spit on me. You would kill my wife to protect your sinful, whorish perversion. You horrific beast. Is it not enough that you suffer eternal damnation for this vulgarity? You should be a murderer as well. God will see that your vile soul is shredded forevermore for what you have done here to your maidenhood and your sainted mother. She is not my mother! Before I knew what I was doing, the hatchet beside the fireplace was in my hand and I had slammed the blade into my father's eye. He stumbled back onto the sofa. He looked furious, so I pulled out the axe and plunged it once again into his face, over and over, in another fit like the one that had ended Abby's life. Maggie, now aware of what I was capable of, came in to stop me. She took the axe from me and hid it. To this day, I know not where. While she was gone, I changed my dress and hid the bloodied one in my room. When Maggie returned, we called the doctor. Ren Manley is the artistic director of Audacious Theatre, which produces theatrical events that stimulate the imagination and the senses. Through the melding of art forms, they explore the boundaries of live performance and seek to provide entertainment through immersion, innovation, and collaboration. Audacious began creating in 2016, led by the Henry Award-winning designer Ren, who writes, directs, and designs their original Halloween shows each year. This was a piece of their 2017 production of Lady Killers. In 2018, they won a Westward Award as the best theater to pop up in unexpected places. Come see the newest audacious experience, Van Helsing's Daughter, popping up at the historic and haunted Lumber Baron Inn, October 19th through the 31st. Visit audaciousTheater.com for more information on tickets, and of course, they're all over that social media, namely Facebook and Instagram. And you know where you'll find all of these links? Do you know where the links will be? They will be in the show description, of course. And and really, that's it. It's curtains for this episode. There's more Halloween goodness on the way, as I mentioned. So don't you fret. In the meantime, I have been Josh Madison. I produced this little venture. And I'll see you in 
Well, like a week, probably. Somewhere around a week? Does that sound good? Alright, we'll see you then. Goodbye. Welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio- Oh god, I gotta get rid of this. I'll make sure nobody hears this.